0: Today we begin a new five part sermon series entitled Mission Unstoppable, Lessons from Matthew's Gospel. Over the next five weeks, we are going to examine our purpose statement. In your bulletin and on the screen behind me, you will find our 41 word purpose statement. I think the statement is succinct and sufficient to describe who we are as a people of God. First Baptist Church Pelham is a Christ centered faith family that exists to make disciples for a global impact by enjoying God through worship and prayer, by equipping disciples through teaching and serving, and by engaging the world through missions and evangelism. So, over the next several weeks, we are going to take that statement line by line, phrase by phrase. And today, I want us to focus on our highest value. Our core value as a people is that we are a Christ-centered faith family. Everything about us revolves around Jesus. We never shrink away from his sovereignty nor his sufficiency. We are Jesus people. What does that mean? What does that look like? Today I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 3. I want to read the first 17 verses in your hearing. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word, Matthew chapter three. I'll begin at verse one, I'll conclude at verse 17. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. i tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down, thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. In Matthew chapter 3, we find the intersection of the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist came preaching a message of repentance. In fact, Matthew summarizes the preaching of John with this phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. What I find extremely interesting is that one chapter later in Matthew chapter four, Matthew uses the same sentence to describe the preaching of Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I don't think that Matthew's trying to tell us that uh, John was plagiarizing Jesus' sermons or that Jesus was plagiarizing the messages of John as might be customary today by some preachers to plagiarize the preaching of other preachers today. I don't think that's what Matthew's telling us when he uses the same phrase to summarize the preaching messages of John and Jesus. I think what he's saying is that they were both giving a singular call to people to come to God and the way they come to God whether it is in the Old Testament or the New Testament the only way anybody ever comes to God is through repentance repent for the kingdom of heaven is near that word repentance means that we um, We turn from sin, and we turn towards the Savior. It's a call to reject rebellion and to receive righteousness. It's a a call to to give up foolishness and to embrace forgiveness. This word repent, it, it means the changing of the mind. For the Bible knows that what a person believes impacts how he behaves. So the Bible consistently says to the person, you need to repent. What does that mean? It means the changing of the mind. And the changing of the mind implies changing of action because belief impacts behavior. So how a person thinks determines how they act. So here this word repentance means the changing of the mind which is also the changing of behavior. This is the only way that a sinner comes to faith in Christ. It's through the repentance of their sin, the acknowledgement of their wrongdoing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Why is a person supposed to repent of sin? Because of the kingdom of heaven. This is a prominent theme in Matthew's Gospel. You'll find it sprinkled all throughout the 28 chapters. The kingdom of heaven Is representative of the cosmic, cataclysmic, Christological event of God stepping out of heaven and stepping into earth. The kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of Christ upon your life. So we are to repent of wrongdoing. We are to confess our sins unto the Lord. We are to repent because Christ's rule is upon us. His rule, his reign, his kingdom is near. To say that the kingdom of heaven is near is to say that it's near, not only in proximity, but also in prominence. The kingdom of heaven is near in proximity. It is close to us. Both John and Jesus. John is pointing to Jesus saying, that's the kingdom of heaven. He's the one who's going to establish it. And Jesus says, I am here. I am God in the flesh. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I and the Father are one. So the kingdom of God, his rule, his reign is near. It is close in proximity. Oh, but it's also close in prominence. Because the kingdom of heaven is upon us in the sense that it is so expansive, we never get outside of its jurisdiction. It is near, you can't help but bump into it, it is close by. You you can't help but to sense it and to see it. If you are a child of God, you know that every aspect of your life, every relationship in your life, every activity in your life is subjected to the rule and reign of Christ upon your life because the kingdom of heaven is near, beloved, not just in proximity but in prominence. You can't help but bump into it. You just can't help but to bump in to the rule and reign of Christ. So the preaching of John and the preaching of Jesus is kind of synonymous. It's a call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. For some of us today, that's the message that you needed to hear today. I mean, I could sit down and be quiet. I'm not going to, but I could sit down right now and the sermon be over because for some Listening to my voice today, the message you need to hear is that, you know, on this first day of a, a first Sunday of a brand new year, what I really need to do is I just need to confess my sin. I, I need to repent because God's righteous rule in Christ is upon me. The reign of Christ is near me and I want to subject myself to him so there's some listening to my voice and today more than anything else you just need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near the call of John the Baptist the call of Jesus in that day is the same call of the preacher of the gospel today people all people need to repent for the kingdom of God is near This aspect of repentance is a present tense command. It implies a continuous action. It is not that you have salvation, lose salvation, have salvation, lose salvation. No, if you are in Christ, you're in Christ to stay. But even if you are in Christ, according to Oswald Chambers, there is a continuous call of repentance upon your life. Because you say, Lord, every time I sidestep you, Every time I attempt to go my own way and be rebellious and do my own thing, Lord, I I, I just need to come and I just need to repent and confess my sin for the kingdom of heaven is upon me. It is near to me in proximity and prominence. Entrance into God's kingdom has always been based upon repentance and receiving. Repent of sin and receive his forgiveness. you got to have both of those. In God's kingdom, the economy that, that works is, is an economy of repentance and receiving. A person cannot say, I repent of sin, but I don't want to receive God's forgiveness in Christ. Nor can a person say, I'm going to receive God's forgiveness in Christ upon my life, but I have no intention of repenting of any wrongdoing that I've ever done. No, in Christ, you, you, you have to repent of sin and you must receive his rule and reign upon you this is the message of John repent for the kingdom of heaven is near it's the same message that Jesus will proclaim it is Isaiah the prophet who says of this one named John uh, that he is a voice in the wilderness calling prepare the way for the Lord make straight paths for him John the Baptist was the Elijah type figure that was foretold in the Old Testament He's the Elijah-type individual. Elijah, who raised the widow's son at Zarephath. Elijah, who had the victory on Mount Carmel. Elijah, who was swept up into the heavens by a whirlwind, never tasting death. This powerful prophet Elijah would be the forerunner of Christ. And Isaiah, some 700 years before the coming of Christ, says, there will be one in the desert calling people unto repentance, unto holiness, preparing them for the way of the Lord. In those days of antiquity, whenever royalty entered town, roads were always repaired. Crooked places were made straight. Rough places were made smooth. Mountains were brought down because royalty was coming to town. And whenever royalty came, they always repaired the highways. What Isaiah is saying, what Matthew perceives is that in John the Baptist, we have the one who's making highways of holiness. He is proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The way you get into God's kingdom in Christ is through repentance of your sin. So he was making rough places smooth, crooked places straight. He was calling all people uh, to have a highway of holiness in their life. This is John the Baptist. Now, I gotta be honest with you, I don't think he ever would have graced the cover of Palestinian GQ magazine. I think that, I think he was hairy. I think he was rough looking. I think he probably smelled a bit. Uh, His clothing was made of camel's hair. He did have a belt around his waist. His diet was bizarre. He ate locusts and wild honey. I guess wild honey, I can understand locusts, I can't. I don't care if you deep fry it and dip, dip it in chocolate. I'm still not going to eat locust. But all of this is a description of a prophet. That's what Matthew's trying to tell us. That this one named John the Baptist, he is prophetic. He, he's in line with Isaiah and Jeremiah. He, he's in line with those like uh, Jonah and, and Malachi. This one named John the Baptist, he he, he is prophetic in his message in his ministry he's calling people to repent and even though he you know looked a bit odd um, antiquated old-fashioned even and even though his diet was quite strange he must have been a charismatic individual because crowds flocked to him i mean people came to him in droves Matthew says, the whole region came to the Jordan River. I don't know if everybody in the whole region came, but what he said is when I looked out at the crowd, it looked like everybody had shown up this day. It looked like everybody was here. The whole region of Judea, everybody, the whole population came out because they wanted to hear what this man had to say. He had a message that was resonating with them. And I can well imagine that the whole region includes professionals and peasants, men and women, boys and girls. Probably some doctors showed up. Some lawyers showed up. Some farmers showed up. All types of people, all types of professions, some who had jobs, some who didn't have jobs. All types of people lined the banks of the Jordan River. And Matthew says they confessed their sins and walked through water baptism. This is a mighty movement of God. One commentator said it this way that water baptism was not a foreign concept to the people of Israel. For it was very common for an adult convert to Judaism to go through water baptism as he came out of paganism into the religion of Israel. Water baptism was something that the people of Israel did, but it was usually reserved for adult converts coming to Judaism from paganism. The commentator said this, what makes this unprecedented is that in Israel, John was calling naturally born Israelites into water baptism. And they were doing it. They were confessing their sins. They were going through water baptism. Water baptism always signified something significant has now happened in my life. There is a change in my life that my old self has been washed away. All of the uh, ramifications of paganism have been washed away. Now I am turning unto something that is new and fresh and real and authentic. In the same way, John was calling even naturally born Israelites to do the very same thing. to turn from their quasi-religion to a real experience with God. And they were being baptized. Now, this was to the shock of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In fact, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, they represented the religious elite of the day of the first century. And to be honest, uh, they were two different groups of religious people and they did not get along very well. They didn't have the same opinions on numerous doctrines I'll give you one primary issue of distinction the Pharisees adamantly believed in resurrection of the dead the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection of the dead And so they disagreed. I mean, they called each other names. They got on Twitter. They got on Instagram. They uh, put blogs on their pages. I mean, they were going at each other all the time. You Sadducees don't know what you're talking about. You Pharisees think you're the pure ones. And they would go at each other until they had a common enemy. When they had a common enemy, they would set their differences aside. They would come together against that enemy. In John the Baptist, they saw a common enemy. They will do the very same thing to Jesus. In Jesus, they will see a common enemy. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees will set their differences aside, set their theological issues apart, and they'll say, let's just focus because we've got to stifle and silence this troublemaker. Apparently, they said to each other, listen, there is a redneck out on the banks of the Jordan River, and he's calling our people. I mean, synagogue attendant people. I mean, people that have been raised in Judaism. He's calling our people to water baptism and confession of sin. We can't have that. We've got to stifle him. And so somebody said, well, we better check it out for ourselves, don't you think? I mean, we can't just go on assumption. We've got to go on facts. So they went out one day Matthew tells us that on that day, John the Baptist saw the Sadducees and the Pharisees in the crowd. How did he know them? He knew them because of their attire. He knew them because of their holy entourage. They always had a holy entourage. And John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the coming wrath of God? Now, friends, that's probably not the warmest greeting that John the Baptist could have given the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I don't think any publishing house ever asked John the Baptist to write a book on church growth because I don't know any minister who would stand up on a Sunday and say, hey, you bunch of snakes, who told you to come to church today? Why don't you just slip it on your belly and get out of here as quickly as you came in here? I mean, I don't know any preacher who would say that. Some preachers may think about that, saying that, but they would actually say it. I mean, who in their right mind would say that? But John the Baptist does, because John is not writing a church growth book. He doesn't care about offending somebody. There is an urgency in his message. Do you hear the urge? Do you feel the urgency? There's something moving in God's people. There is something that's stirring that's fresh. There's something we must do today. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He looks and he sees the troublemakers of religious life in Israel, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he calls them out. You brood of vipers, who warned you to come? But it is a message of hope. Because he tells them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now that's a message of hope, don't you think? I mean, at least he gives them a shot. He says to them, you gotta do what everybody else is doing. You too have to repent and produce fruit in keeping with that repentance. Now stop and consider what John is saying. This message of repentance is not by word only but it's followed by action. He says that you don't just confess your sin just in your lips, but have no transformation in your life. No, this work of God, this kingdom of heaven, which is so very near to you, is a call not just to repent, but the Repentance is revealed by the faithful actions of the people of God. So produce fruit in keeping with that repentance. It's not enough just to get the fire insurance, John is saying. It's not enough just to have the right vernacular. No, your life has to verify who you say you are. So produce fruit in keeping with that repentance. He says... Once again, with a sense of urgency, the ax is already at the root of the tree. God is already about to cut down some stuff. Now you've got a shot, you've got an opportunity, you've got a chance today to repent and produce fruit and keep with repentance. And what he said to the Pharisees, he's been saying to everybody else, so it's a consistent message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. But the, the ax of God's judgment is at the root of the tree. He's about to, to swing it and swipe it. He's about to cut it down. Elsewhere, Jesus told a story of one day a man who planted a fig tree in a particular vineyard. And year after year, he went and examined the fig tree and it never produced figs. Uh, after the third year, uh, he went to the the carekeeper of the vineyard. He said, for three years now, I've been coming to look for figs, and this fig tree has not produced any figs. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? It's not really a lesson on how to harvest figs. It's a lesson on how to harvest faithfulness. That somehow God expects, demands, deserves, faithfulness from his children. If you've ever asked the question, what is the fruit that I'm supposed to produce? I mean, if my repentance of sin is supposed to result in something, what is that something it's supposed to result in? If you've ever asked that, that's a great question. What is the fruit that God expects from you? What is the fruit God expects from me? This idea of being a fruitful, faithful follower of the Lord is not just a New Testament concept. We find it from Genesis to Revelation. It's sprinkled all throughout the 66 books. Now, I will tell you that much of it in the Old Testament, fruit is connected to loot. I mean, the fruit that you give is the money that you give. The first fruit offering the Old Testament sacrificial system, it spoke often about, about the, the fruit that you give. And in those contexts, fruit is loot. It's, it, it's the offerings that we give. It's, uh, it's the tithe that we give. It's the sacrifices that we give. And clearly, uh, God is saying that you give to me the first fruit offering, which is the first fruit of the harvest. The first represents the best. And by giving me the best, you're telling of the Lord, you're also giving him the rest. He has control over 100% of it. You give him the first fruit, you give him the initial part, you give him the best, and he is sovereign over the rest. And so there is an idea that fruit is connected to loot. So what is the fruit of repentance? If you have repented of your sin, if you're in the kingdom of God, then you are a generous person. And you give generously to the work of God through the church. I've applauded you several times, many times over the last several years. And I'll continue to do that. Because you are a generous people. And you've continued to give generously over the last two years, especially in the midst of a global pandemic. And I applaud your generosity. It It is fruit of your repentance. Now, I say that and I applaud you, but don't stop. You don't give to keep the lights on. You give because God has given to you. God has been generous towards you and the fruit of your repentance is that you are generous unto the work of the Lord. And so you give extravagantly. You you give generously. You give because fruit, (laughs) it is symbolic of loot. But that's not it. When you get to the New Testament, the idea of fruit is uh, expanded even greater. So that fruit includes and implies the good deeds that you do. John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides, whoever remains in me, bears much fruit. My father is a gardener. He cuts off every branch that doesn't bear fruit. He prunes the other branches that do bear fruit so they'll produce even more fruit. Now, him talking like that is not some financial making scheme for God and his kingdom. He's not trying to say, how can I get more loot out of you? How can I get more money from you? No, in in, in John 15, that analogy that uh, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with how you live your life, the good deeds that you do. If a person consistently doesn't do good deeds, that's evidence that they are not connected to the vine. Now Jesus is not having a works-based salvation. But what he is saying is that while it's true that works don't save, you are saved to do good works. Good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. So the evidence of your salvation is revealed by the fruit, the good deeds of your life. If a person consistently does not demonstrate good deeds, Jesus says, the gardener's gonna cut off that branch and burn it. And the gardener's gonna cut actually every branch because he's gonna cut off the dead wood, but even the good wood that produces fruit, he's gonna cut it a little bit more. It's called pruning. He's gonna prune the branch so that it'll be even more fruitful so that the good that you did last year pales in comparison to the good that you're going to do this year. Because if you are a child of God, if you're attached to the vine, if you're abiding in Christ, Christ will prune you to produce more good fruit. And the pruning sometimes just might hurt. I mean, if you could talk to that branch that branch would actually say you know I would be okay if the gardener just would not bring his knife anywhere near me I'd be all right with that because I know I'm not a you know deadwood he's not going to cut me off but when the gardener comes and he prunes me that that also hurts friends we don't know what the future holds but we do know who holds the future in his hands we don't know what 2022 entails we don't know the suffering that some of our brothers and sisters may experience and endure. But God just might be about the business of pruning you so that you can be even more fruitful in his kingdom. Because fruitfulness, yeah, it has something to do with loot, but it also has something to do with the good deeds that you do in your life. Because what the good you did in the past pales in comparison to the good you're going to do in the future for the kingdom of God. So the fruit that he expects from you, good deeds. But there's also this idea that fruit is evangelistic conversions. In Romans chapter 1, verse 13, the apostle Paul says, Many times I've tried to come and visit you. I've been kept from doing so, but I've been wanting to come and visit you so that we might have a great harvest as I've had with other Gentile nations. You say, Pastor, uh, you didn't say fruit. Well, that word harvest is the same Greek word for fruit. So what Paul is saying is, when I come to you, I want to have a great harvest, a great fruit-bearing experience. Now, what does that mean? He doesn't mean, let's just sit across the table and share a pear. He doesn't mean, let's just sit across the table and share an apple together. It's not just have fruit with you, as I've had fruit with the other Gentiles. No, he's talking about people here, that fruit represents evangelistic converts, people who did not know Christ, yet because of you, now they do know Christ. I can ask it the way that I've always been asked before. Uh, Tell me, when was the last time that you won somebody to Christ? Now, I think there is a flaw in that vernacular, but you understand the sentiment of the statement, don't you? I mean, the flaw in that statement, who have you won to Christ? You don't win anybody to Christ. The Spirit of God draws people to himself. So a more accurate theological way to say the same thing is simply for me to ask you, when was the last time that God drew somebody to himself by using you? When was the last time that God drew somebody to himself in faith using your words, your life, your intentional efforts? When was the last time that you shared the good news of the gospel with somebody in the hopes that they would receive? And by God's spirit and by his power, they did receive and the lost were found and the person became a child of God. The dead were raised to life because of their faith. When was the last time that God drew somebody to himself by using you? Was it last week, last month, last year? Has it been ever? Southern Baptist studies tell us that the vast majority of Southern Baptists never win anybody to Christ. They never win anybody to Christ. Friend, when was the last time God used you to bring somebody unto him. Now, I'm asking this a lot nicer than John the Baptist would be asking this. Can you imagine how John the Baptist would ask us this question? But this is the fruit that he's talking about. Who was the last person, when was the last time that that somebody was converted into Christ because of your intentional effort and your words and your lifestyle and the way that you carry yourself? When was the last time, beloved, that somebody came to Christ because of you? The fruit in the Bible is evangelistic conversion, evangelistic converts. But also, like in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, fruit implies my words of worship. Hebrews chapter 13, through Jesus, we continually offer a sacrifice of praise. And if we or a little fuzzy on what sacrifice of praise is, the author of the Hebrew letter defines sacrifice of praise as the fruit on our lips that confesses his name. The fruit on our lips that confesses his name. To me, that sounds like worship. Doesn't it sound like worship to you? To me, that sounds like when we exalt the holy name of Christ, when we worship him with our words and by our actions, when we just have the fruit on our lips, where we confess the name of the Lord. That's fruit. But then I'll give you a final example of what fruit is in the Bible, and this is the one that probably several of your minds went to when I first talked about what is the fruit that God expects you to bear. And you thought about Galatians chapter five, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you've read your Bible, you've studied the scripture, you know that that's a description of one fruit, not nine fruits. It's a singular fruit. It's like looking at an apple saying it is red, it is round, it is delicious. Those words describe one of the same apple. In the same way, when the Spirit of God is controlling your life, there are certain characteristics that ought to be on display in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, let's be gracious one to the other. Because while all of us need to exhibit all nine of these, none of us are stellar in exhibiting all nine of these. Sometimes we're better at exhibiting one over the other, but that doesn't give us an excuse to not allow the Spirit of God to fashion us into these characteristics. Because friends, uh, don't you know some Christians that are more loving than other Christians? And don't you know some Christians that are more patient than other Christians? And don't you know some believers that have more self-control than other believers? It's not that we can't have those things. It's just that the Spirit of God is working on us at a different pace. Can I get an amen? I mean, we've got to be patient with each other, right? But at the end of the day, that's the fruit that ought to be demonstrated in our life that God expects something to come from the repentance. It ought to reveal fruit of faithfulness. Yeah, that fruit is, it's, it's, uh, it's loot, it's also good deeds, evangelistic converts, words of worship on our lips, and of course, the fruit of the Spirit. This is what John is telling the Sadducees and the Pharisees, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I baptize you with water, he says. But there's one coming after me. He's far greater than I am. I can't even be compared to him. He's in a class all by himself. I'm not even worthy to stand behind him several paces and carry his sandals like a slave. I'm not even fit to be his bondservant. I baptize you with water. He's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands. He will clear his threshing floor. He will separate the wheat from the chaff. The authentic wheat will fall at his feet. The useless chaff the imitation, it will be blown away, bound up, and thrown into the fire. Friends, do you hear the urgency in John's message? He says that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Let me tell you quickly, that is not a two-step process of salvation or entrance into God's kingdom. That is not a two-step process of baptism. We have some siblings, some brothers and sisters, who are adamant uh, that a person really isn't saved until they are baptized by the Holy Spirit. And you ask those individuals, what does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? And they'll tell you the evidence of that is speaking in tongues. Now the problem with that doctrine from those brothers and sisters is that that is nowhere taught in the Bible. Nowhere taught in the Bible that you really become a bona fide Christian by speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's not the only gift, and it's not even the elevated gifts. So when John says that you're baptized by the Holy Spirit in fire, he's not talking about two separate baptisms. It's one and the same baptism. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When does that happen? At the moment of faith. At the moment of faith, it is the Spirit of God that saturates and seals your salvation unto him for the rest of all of eternity. It is is the Holy Spirit that seals you. And throughout the Scripture, the Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin, that uh, brings you unto salvation, that completes your salvation. His symbol is fire. And fire is the emblematic of purification. So what, what John the Baptist is saying is that there's one coming after me and all that I'm doing is preparatory. All I'm doing is symbolic of what he will actually do. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit will seal your salvation and purify you for all time and eternity. It's one of the same. No sooner had John the Baptist said that, that Jesus burst onto the scene. I know it doesn't take long to read from Matthew chapter 2 to Matthew chapter 3. At the end of Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is a toddler. The wise men came and uh, they, they saw him. And then Jesus uh, was taken by Joseph and Mary to Egypt and then returned back to Nazareth. And the last thing we see of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 is that Jesus is a young boy, a toddler, a child. And he's in Nazareth. When you get to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew... Uh, tells us that Jesus came on the banks of the Jordan River. By now, he's 30 years old. Some 28 years passed between Matthew chapter two and Matthew chapter three. And Jesus comes to the banks of the Jordan River. He says to his relative, probably a cousin, says to his cousin, John, you need to baptize me. And John is appalled at this. You have no reason for baptism. You don't need to confess any sin. You have no sin to confess. You don't need to go through water baptism. You're Jesus, you're, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. If anything, listen, if anybody's gonna get baptized, let me be baptized by you. See, John always pointed to the reality that Jesus is Christ. Even in utero, he did this. For when mother Mary came to Elizabeth, Elizabeth who was already six months pregnant with John the Baptist, when Mary walked in to their house saying that God had overshadowed her, what was conceived inside of her was from the Holy Spirit. And we are told by the gospel writer that John the Baptist began to leap for joy in utero. He was splashing around in the embryonic fluid and he was saying, that's him, that's him, that's him, that's the one, that's the Messiah. Even before he was born, he was pointing people to Jesus. All throughout his ministry, he says, all I do, I just point people to Jesus. Jesus, here you are on the banks of the Jordan River, and you're, you want to be baptized by me? I, I can't do that. And Jesus said, let it be so for now. It fulfills all righteousness. Jesus insisted. John consented. They went down into the water. What happens next is a beautiful... Trinitarian selfie, where God just takes a picture of Himself. God the Father speaks. God the Son comes up out of the waters of baptism, and God the Spirit descends upon the Son like a dove. God the Father speaks. This is my beloved Son, whom I love. With Him, I am well pleased. God, who's the author of the word, puts together two phrases he's already spoken. One is in Psalm chapter 2. The other is in uh, the book of Isaiah. And he puts both these together. Both of those, Psalm 2 and Isaiah, point to the reality of the Messiah. And God, who's the author of all scripture, in this moment, he puts those two phrases together. And he says to the entire world, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Jesus comes up out of the water, which, as a side note, baptismo means to immerse. It means to dip. You and I would say means to dunk. And so for Jesus to come up out of the water implies he went down into the water. And so Jesus was baptized. He went into the water. He came up out of the water. And God the Son descended upon him and lighted on him like a dove. What a beautiful picture of God. The Trinitarian selfie. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The Spirit of God lighted on him. It doesn't just mean it landed on him, but it lit him up, right? I mean, it it, in some ways is a precursor to the transfiguration of Jesus. The words of God the Father, that's not the only time he will say those words. In Matthew chapter 17, it is Jesus who takes Peter, James, and John. They go up the mountain of transfiguration, and there Jesus is transfigured. His face becomes as bright as the sun. His clothes, as they are bleached as white as possible. He is transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah appear, Moses the law, Elijah the prophets, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. They come and they speak about the upcoming exodon, his departure, the word exodon is exodus, how Jesus like Moses will lead the captives out of captivity. Moses led them out of Egypt, Jesus will lead us out of the slavery of sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of the prophets. Everything the prophets foretold is found and bound in Jesus. And it's Peter, the loud mouth of the bunch, who should just shut up and sit down. But he never knows when to keep his mouth shut. Anybody else have that problem? He never knows when to be quiet. He says, Jesus, this is good for us to be here. I tell you what, we'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. A shelter is similar to an altar. What Peter is saying is, Jesus, we're gonna worship you right alongside our worship of Moses and Elijah. And as soon as that is spoken, a cloud envelops the mountain and the voice of God Almighty speaks. And what does he say? This is my beloved son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And then he adds this phrase, listen to him. After God the Father spoke, The cloud vanished, and so did Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John, they look up, and Jesus is all alone. No one there except Jesus. That is Matthew's way of telling us Jesus is in a class all by himself. The problem with Peter's proposal is that he demoted Jesus and put him on par with Moses and Elijah. Jesus is not on par with Moses and Elijah. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's in a class all by himself. He is all alone. No one is in his same stratosphere. Matthew writes this gospel to answer the question, who is Jesus? It's a question that not only must be answered for Matthew's audience, but it's got to be answered for all of us. Who is Jesus? The way Matthew frames his gospel, Emmanuel begins and ends the gospel. Matthew chapter one, the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son and give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Chapter 28, the very last chapter, the resurrected Jesus is there on the mountain of ascension. As you go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to observe everything For surely I am with you always. Emmanuel, I am with you. Matthew begins and ends with Emmanuel. He begins and ends on a mountain. It's early in one of the first teaching passages of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. The very last chapter, Matthew 28, after Jesus has been nailed to the cross, buried in a tomb, raised from the dead, he is there on a mountain and he calls his disciples and from there he ascends to the heavens. And Matthew begins his gospel and ends his gospel with Jesus. He begins with the incarnation story. He ends with the glorification story of how Jesus has ascended to the heavens. See, for Matthew Um, I think he would like our purpose statement. For he would say, yes, we are a Christ-centered faith family. Everything about us is centered around Jesus. We don't diminish his sovereignty. We don't shrink back from his sufficiency. Everything we are is about Jesus. And why is that? Because Jesus is more faithful than Abraham. He's more priestly than Aaron. Aaron. He's more prophetic than Isaiah. Jesus is purer than King David. He's wiser than King Solomon. He's stronger than Samson. He is more obedient than Jonah. He is more devoted than Hosea. This uh, Jesus is irreplaceable and he's irresistible. Jesus is unstoppable and yet he's approachable. This Jesus can break the hard hearted. This Jesus commend the brokenhearted. This Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is the Rose of Sharon. He is the Lily of the Valley. He is the bright and morning star. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I wish I had a witness in the house today. This Jesus was one that uh, that Judas could not derail, that Pilate could not dethrone, that the devil could not destroy. For one Friday, Jesus died. And on Saturday, Jesus got up. In Him, we have everything that we need. In Him, our faith is found a resting place. In Him, all of our sin is forgiven. In Him, all of our tears are wiped away. In Him, our past is forgotten. In Him, our present is secure. In Him, our future is solid. In Him, we have everything that we need. So we are a Christ-centered faith family because we believe that Jesus is all that we need. We are indebted to Him. We love Him. We serve him. We worship him. We make much of him. We talk about him. We talk to him. We follow him. We are centered on Christ, not just as a church, but as a collective body of believers, but as individual families and as individuals, we want to center everything in our life, all of our activity, all of our actions, all of our relationships, all of our attitudes. We want to center and ground it on Jesus, him crucified and resurrected. I came to tell you this morning, this is our highest value we're all about Jesus we are Christ-centered faith family of God so this morning I wonder is there anybody here who needs to embrace the kingdom of God in your life anyone who needs to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior today can be the day of salvation Is there anyone here who needs to repent from sin? Just confess wrongdoing and say, Jesus, please, in humility, I come to you. Please, just forgive me. And God never turns away the broken and contrite heart. Is there somebody here who needs to join this faith family to say, I want to be part of a place that makes much of Jesus Friends, we are not perfect, we are far from it. There's only one perfect one, his name is Jesus. But we wanna do our best to please him. So if you're here today and you're looking for a place to plop and land and grow and serve, then maybe on this first Sunday of a brand new year, today be the great day. This Jesus is our savior. We wanna center everything in life upon him. This is who we are as a Christ-centered faith family. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Lord, we pray that uh, as your word is proclaimed, that it falls on fertile soil, that people respond in obedience. Help us, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.